You're listening to The Dealmaker's Edge with A.Y. Strauss, diving deep into stories behind commercial real estate leaders. Today, I want to welcome our very esteemed guest. It's an old friend of mine, Daniel Klein. He's the president of Klein Enterprises, a fourth generation developer, owner and operator of commercial real estate through the Mid-Atlantic region. In his role as president, Daniel is responsible for the company's overall performance, managing debt and equity, leasing, asset management, development acquisitions, with the primary focus on sustaining the company's existing portfolio while you know, handling that, that long-term growth. And Daniel, you're doing a great job and you're coming off of a large closing and you're also very young. So we're really excited that you're on the podcast today. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Um, well, what we'd like to do to start as we really just like to dig into people's personal background, um, where you grow up. I know you started in the family business, but the company morphed into a lot more than that. But maybe you could just give me sort of broad brush strokes, a few minutes for our listeners, you know, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you got started in the business, that type of thing. Sure, absolutely. So um, I'm born in Baltimore, Maryland, and grew up here. And uh, eventually, after Baltimore, I did a year of boarding school a school called Mercersburg Academy in Pennsylvania, and then went to college in Boston at Boston University. In my background in Baltimore was sort of a little bit unconventional, even though we're in a family business. My father passed away when I was very young, when I was four, and my mother had a lot of mental health issues. And so I ended up moving in with my grandparents uh, after my freshman year in high school. And that sort of ties in with the real estate story in a way, because my grandfather that I moved in with is the one who really had started uh, what was the sort of the genesis behind Klein Enterprises. And I ended up sort of, you know, getting the education at the kitchen table with him while I was in high school and working for the company over the summers back then. And I worked as a, a maintenance man, uh, really a maintenance boy at that time when I was 14 or 15 one summer. And I worked in the office uh, one or two summers. Uh, I think the, the second summer actually got fired by my family, but that's a separate story. And then um, it sort of gave me sort of the, the platform to be interested in real estate. And while I was in college in Boston, I actually worked as a residential real estate broker and thought I'd end up moving to New York and working in investment banking or, or doing something you know, in that direction. But my grandfather, who really was my father and who had raised me, was 86 when I finished in Boston and asked if I would move back to Baltimore and work with our family business, which was you know, a solid business, but pretty small in scale at that point in time. And he was somebody I couldn't really say no to. And so I moved back to Baltimore in 2004 and thought I would give it a shot for a year or two. And here I am today, 18 years later, running Klein Enterprises and I'm very proud of what we've been able to grow and achieve here. For sure. And I think on your site, you have a quote from your grandfather. Always remember that talent gets you nowhere if you don't apply yourself and put in the hard work to produce something. And what a quote that is that you're a testament to. I'm sure you think about that all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, he was, he was a, a big believer that there are a lot of people in this world who have the skills and the abilities to, to go places, but they don't actually apply them. And I was fortunate that he told me about a lot of people that he saw himself who maybe had the talent, but didn't have the will to, uh, to achieve what they wanted to achieve in life. That's a great quote and great story. And you really bring that to bear every day. We really want to get behind that too, that perseverance. And you're coming off of a large uh, deal. I know you're working really hard on for a while and we'll get to that as well. But I guess from there, you know, just delving into the business, um, how were those early years for you sort of just, you learned from the bottom up, you know, literally. Um, but maybe you could talk about some of those earlier years, doing acquisitions, coming up really young, that type of thing. Sure. Um, well, you know, after working as a residential broker in college in Boston, I actually took a pay cut to move back to Baltimore and work with my family. I remember when I moved back in uh, 2004, we had seven or eight 
employees in our office. And I spent the first two years sort of rotating around and learning all aspects of the business. And we were a modest company uh, that had ownership in probably 15 shopping centers in the Baltimore metropolitan area at that point in time. I don't think there was a better time to come back and get that exposure because for the first three or four years that I was working with my family, we were unsuccessful in probably eight to 12 bidding opportunities on acquisitions of shopping centers. We were having trouble finding development sites because everything was sort of at the height of the market. And the economics just weren't making sense in a lot of transactions. Rather than being at a big company where if I was on an acquisitions team, I'd put the bid in and we wouldn't win it and I wouldn't learn anything. Uh, my grandfather would actually sit down with me after we put a bid in and let's say we'd offer $10 million or something and would sell for 13 or 14. He'd run through the economics with me on the interest only loans that people were underwriting, the 25% rank growth that people were underwriting and just how it didn't seem sustainable and it, and it didn't seem right. And I think it positioned us in a really healthy way where once the downturn finally hit in 2008 and 2009, that we were in very healthy position financially and we didn't have any bad deals that were weighing us down. And it sort of gave us an opportunity to, to look ahead with a fresh start as to how we wanted to grow our company coming out of the downturn. I know a lot of people struggled then and you're lucky that you were positively positioned at that time. One thing we talked about a while ago, and at this point is years, you know, uh, some people may, may be listening to this that are in a family business and family businesses have different family dynamics. They're businesses, but they're different in many ways than obviously institutions and other more corporate structures, if you will. I know you were really active from a very young age, years and years ago, going back, you know, positioning a family business to be more institutional in nature, not institutional in the stuffy sense, but with different governance and structures and pieces of the puzzle in place, you can really put together the scale. And I think a lot of family companies, they just say, well, my dad had these assets, my grandfather had these assets, I'll continue to have the assets, maybe buy a few more, but you really thought much bigger. And that I think catapulted your growth. And this is a conversation I think going back years, maybe you can describe to listeners how you went through that thinking process about how to really grow the infrastructure and the corporate governance as you scale. Absolutely. I think it took some time in terms of those first few years where I really felt like not a lot was happening. And I felt like we were just being stewards of the assets that we had, but not trying to actually grow the company for everybody's benefit. Um, and, you know, other than my grandfather, my late uncle, you know, my grandfather passed away back in 2010, but uh, my late uncle, Michael Klein, uh, was a partner in the business as well. And he sort of espoused this philosophy that my grandfather's generation lived to work and my uncle's generation just worked to live. And I felt like it didn't necessarily need to be either one, but by hearing a second or a third generation take that approach that they're just working to live as opposed to uh, putting in more effort, you know, and taking advantage of the opportunities that they're given, it would always anger me. It would always make me upset when I would hear him say it publicly. Cause I would look at what we had and said, you know, this is an amazing platform and most people start with nothing. And so the base that we have is something that we should be grateful for and we should take advantage of the opportunities that we're given. And it ties in with a lot with some of my family history. So, you know, beyond my father passing away young, I have a sister who passed away when I was 15. And so looking at you know, the opportunities that they miss really has driven me to sort of look at the opportunities that I'm in a position to take advantage of. And I also would see a lot of other family businesses that would just sort of maintain what they would have. And it never seemed to end well families grow, generations shift. And it's always seemed to me that if you're not attempting to grow what you have in a healthy and responsible way, you probably won't end up with much when you're all said and done. 
And I've always been motivated by the statistics that people give that by the time you get to the third generation, only two or 3% of family businesses still exist. And who knows what the quality of those businesses are. And so hearing that also, I've been a big believer that there's nothing wrong to start out as a family business and to evolve into something that's more stable and more secure and healthier that can serve a broader base of people for many years to come. Well said, I think that's a struggle. People get emotionally attached to the family bonds. It's hard to think on a macro level. There's obviously complex relationships on the deep, deep level there to, to evolve. But evolve, you certainly have. And I know just, was it almost about a year or so ago, a $200 million investment in Almanac Realty. Tell me about how that came to be to the extent you can share. And I know it was years and years of positioning yourself in more of that corporate structure like we talked about versus, you know, we're small knit family business. I think the, the origin story there actually goes back to adversity in our family business and issues that I was experiencing sort of uh, as a next generation leader in our family business. I became president here at Klein Enterprises uh, 2009, 2010, when I was 28 or 29 years old. And I, I was equal partners with my late uncle. And you know we grew the business from maybe $150 million of gross asset value then to up to about $1.2 billion today. And you go through a lot of growing pains as an organization, as a company, when you are doing a lot of new transactions with new structures. And a lot of it came to a head with my uncle summer of 2016, where, you know, I don't talk about it that frequently, but I have shared with others that we were having so much conflict amongst the two of us that I was prepared to leave Climate Enterprises and go start another company. He was mostly retired. We discussed a formal sort of transition of him out of our operating company for a number of years. And, and he was creating a lot of issues with our growing team and our personnel with money morning quarterbacking and just allowing ego to get in the way of doing what was best for the company at the time. You know, it came to a head and we sort of had a sit down about it. And if he wasn't prepared to have a formal succession plan or a transition plan for operating company, I was going to go. And he recognized that he needed to walk away from the operating company, not ownership of his real estate, but the operating company so that I could hire the best people possible to build out the highest quality team that we could have to grow. And that transition and that transaction where I bought him out at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, really laid the platform to allow us to bring in a, a lot of you know, really unbelievable people to help build out our team. Um, was able to hire our general counsel, Neil Schechter, our chief investment officer, Sean Garland, our chief financial officer, Aaron Levinoff, and build the infrastructure to allow us to continue to grow. And that allowed us to go into a process where we did a uh, portfolio-wide roll-up, which started at the beginning of 2018. And we formed a holding company that would have ownership across all of the assets in our portfolio. And we invited a lot of our um, our partners and non-family investors to come along with us. And when we start out with an entity, January 1st, 2018, that had about close to $150 million of net equity value. And that infrastructure that we built with our holding company allowed us to really take that institutional step to evolve our company, evolve our organization, and allowed us to get a you know corporate credit facility, allowed us to have a clearer vision about who we want to be in the future, not just who we were in the past. And you know, we continue to grow that holding company and to grow our asset base and to grow our equity base. And that sort of helps open the door for an institutional partner to come in and invest in our holding company. So that way we continue to grow our platform over the next five to 10 years. I've always been impressed how you've taken the family business and institutionalized it. I find that there's either, either institutions or family businesses and there's so much stress in between. You've put in a lot of work, I know, and you, you simplified that for our listeners, but I know there was a lot of heartache and a lot of effort from your team and you personally, and, and congratulations on that. And bring it to present day, fresh off the press, you, you just acquired nine shopping centers. 
Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, over $130 million transaction. I know you worked really hard with that on your team. It was a Cedar Realty Trust was a seller. So maybe you could talk about that deal a little bit. Sure. Uh, you know, there's some irony behind this transaction because our roots are in grocery anchored shopping centers. And effectively, from you know, 2012 to through 2021, I put forth so much effort to diversify our portfolio to get away from being 100% retail. And we developed about 2,500 class A apartments during that period of time. And really, our team did a great job of executing on the diversification. And so to come back in full circle and acquire 800,000 square feet of retail all at once in a single closing from a, a seller that in the process of selling themselves or dissolving was a symbolic transaction that as you know we're growing with our core roots while also still focusing on these other asset classes. That's a deal that was really originated by DRA and uh, KPR. You know, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about it. They went under agreement to buy 33 centers from Cedar for, you know, north of 800 million and they spun off a number of closings and a number of the assets and we ended up acquiring nine of the assets in the mid-atlantic region on the same day that dra and kpr acquired the rest of the assets that they didn't been out and that's the type of transaction you know that needed north of 50 million dollars of equity from our side and it's the type of transaction that we're comfortable that we can perform on given that we have a, a really excellent private equity partner and when we have a good transaction that makes sense economically and fits in a real house, we can form on. And that's a testament to our team here also, right? You know, I mentioned we had eight people when I moved back here, we have 25 people in our corporate office today. And we have a deep bench of analysts. We have a deep bench in property management and we have a deal team that's really strong that can work together to execute on complicated transactions. Well said and well executed. And again, if it wasn't for all the infrastructure you worked very hard to build and that partner you brought on, this still may not, ever ha- may not have happened. So it's important for listeners to appreciate that, you know, just walk in and acquire that deal. It's many, many years of infrastructure and development of the team, et cetera. Closing a, a transaction like that and buying 800,000 square feet of retail all at once, um, you actually sort of just laid it out for me, but our philosophy here for the past, you know, five or 10 years has been to build up our infrastructure. So that way we have the necessary team on hand where we can execute on the opportunities that we know will be coming to us in the future. And I think this one's a great example where we closed our private equity partnership last year and they uh, committed $200 million to cloud enterprises. We didn't know where the deals were going to come from. You know, we had a nice pipeline of transactions, but not to satisfy $200 million of commitments. But we sort of espoused internally that once we have the capital commitment, we need to have the personnel and the team ready because you never know where these opportunities are going to come from. And the Cedar portfolio, where the portion of it that we took down is a great example where our existing long-term relationships reached out to us, knowing that we had the capital behind us and knowing that we had the, the team capable of executing a transaction like that. And we negotiated an off-market transaction that you know we closed less than 90 days after it was introduced to us. And without the right team and without preparing and thinking ahead to what types of opportunities we would see, we, we would have never been able to do that. Five years ago, if we would have received this call, we would have just said, you know what, that's too big for us, we'll pass. But when we get these calls now, you know everyone is excited and ready to embrace these opportunities to see what we're able to to take advantage of and what we're able to achieve as a company. I think you hit it right, relationships. You have those relationships in place, you bring it together with your team, mix in some capital and a little bit of luck, you're on your way. So you've really put in all the major ingredients. It's incredible to see. One of the other things we've talked about in the past is you're now in position to also invest in some operating companies yourself. 
comp companies that sort of their mission or what they're doing day to day on a deal flow perspective is accretive to your broader ambition. I don't know if you can describe any specific deals and you can keep it generic, but how has that worked for you as a strategy? I know sometimes if there's, whether it's a family office or institution, they're, they're looking for growing businesses to invest in on their own in addition to growing their core portfolio. Yeah, tied in with our growth. One of the things we learned when we originated KE Holco, which is our holding company, and we had a few subsequent roll-ups along the way, is that as we had existing partners who, in their own family situations, were looking for ways to diversify, just being concentrated in a few assets, that they saw the value in rolling their equity interests up into our holding company. We realized that as an external strategy to look at other families or other companies that may not have their own succession plans in place or transition plans in place, that we could be a good alternative for them to roll you know, their operating companies up or their real estate portfolios or portions of their portfolios into our holding company. Candidly, we've been so busy focusing on our development pipeline and our acquisition transactions, and those deals take more time. We haven't actually executed on the M&A side with any other real estate firms yet, not because there's the opportunities aren't there, but the psychology involved in families making that leap is just more of a cultivation process as opposed to, you know, the Cedar deal, for example, we got a call on, you know, three months ago and then we're closed today. And so we've also had to figure out where we want to expend our energy as we're looking at opportunities because we see so much and we have that problem already because we have a diversified portfolio out of our $1.2 billion of assets. About 40% of that gross value is in retail. About 45% is in class A multifamily. And the other 15% is in that bucket of what we call everything else, but really consists of flex, industrial, office, and self-storage. And so filtering out our opportunities across all of the asset classes that we're already operating in takes enough energy and effort um, that we haven't been able to focus as much on the M&A side as we'd like to, but we do think there are a lot of great opportunities out there. One of the things you touched on earlier in the beginning of the conversation was uh, mental health. And I think mental health goes a long way as far as if you can get your head on straight, you could actually be available for your team to execute at a very high level and to make it all flow. It's very stressful taking down a $130 million transaction, even if it comes from a relationship and with all the equity aligned and all the chaos that involves, but also just being a steward for all the capital, all the property management, everything you're doing and all that you went through in your childhood. How do you manage the day-to-day -day stress? What type of mental tapes do you play in your head to sort of carry on day-to-day? -day? Love to hear about that. Sure. I'm definitely somebody that learns from experience um, and having been directly involved in experiences and walking away and saying, you know, how did it impact me? How did I respond? You know, what did I do to make myself a better person coming out of it? I absolutely take time for myself. Even if I get back on and I sit at my computer and I work from 10 o'clock at night till midnight when everyone's sleeping in my house, I carve out the family time in between. I coach my kids sports teams. I still actively play on a 40 and up lacrosse team. I play on an ice hockey team. I play tennis. I'm very focused on physical fitness as a way to have an escape from the grind of the wear and tear that your body can take mentally dealing with work environments. And I'm also a very stable person emotionally because I've seen so many people who were unstable around me that I always expect the unexpected. And so you know, the little things that can add up during the day don't really bother me, but I definitely have people here in my office who wear their emotions on their sleeve and serve that role on my behalf. So everyone sort of has to play their role. And we have people here who, who definitely do um, to deal with a lot of those burdens. And, and I figured out eventually at this point in my life, in my career, I'm 41 now, where my strengths are 
and what sort of brings me up versus what brings me down. And I think it's very important for people to sort of step back and recognize that and also sort of be open with the people that they're working with about, you know, where you are at any point in time in terms of how you're feeling about a situation and not to keep it all bottled up. And I think that, uh, you know, transparency and clarity really help out for everybody at the end of the day. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to unpack on that topic today. I always like to try to hit it. I can go as long <laughs> as you want. You know, people, people in my office actually get annoyed sometimes because I don't ever get angry, mostly because I realize how precious every moment we have is. And if, if I were to spend it being angry, it's not going to help anyone else at the end of the day. You know, I feel like I've developed a PhD in psychology at this point in time. You know, real estate is an industry that everybody knows has very low barriers to entry. You know, and the counterparties in every transaction are completely different. You can sort of use the Forrest Gump box of chocolates analogy. We could be working with a mega institution on a transaction at 10 a.m., that has 12 people from their deal team working on the deal that you need to keep in the loop on something. And at one o'clock in the afternoon, we could be dealing with a guy who literally dropped out of high school and started his company in a pickup truck that he still drives around and is his only partner in the company. And it's really important to step back on any transaction or really any interaction in life and to process who's on the other side of the table from you and who you're dealing with and what their motivations are and what they're trying to achieve because every situation is different. And even with the same company, if you're dealing with a company three months apart, their situations might be different. And it's really important to step back and sort of take measure or take stock as to, as to who you're dealing with and what you're dealing with to have some empathy and to understand who's on the other side and realize that sometimes the transaction is going to be easy and sometimes it's going to be difficult. And you can have both of those experiences, you know, within two days with the same person that's on the other side of the table. Anything I haven't asked you that you wish I would have asked you that you can really articulate some of your thoughts about whether it's deal-making, um, goal setting, day-to-day uh, -day grind, managing. I think for any real estate company that's growing, um, you know, I think the issues that we deal, we deal with today uh, as a, an organization, as a company from a strategic perspective and an HR perspective and a personnel perspective really relates to sort of, where, where we are operating, where our portfolio is and how we're growing. You know, we have our holdings today are in five States, um, you know, along the East coast of the United States. And we were only in Maryland 10 plus years ago. There's more travel. There's a fragmented workforce. We have to manage our time obligations as we're looking at opportunities in different States. We have to vet out, you know, what we're actually looking at. And so that also ties into sort of how we, how quickly we say no to something. I'm not someone who's very good at saying no, period. It's one of my weaknesses, but which is also why we have some great people here who, who know how to say no on my behalf, you know, because everyone says I'm too nice. And so looking at opportunities and figuring out very quickly, does it fit within our criteria or not? Do we say yes or no when an opportunity comes in? We've had to get much better at uh, because we would spend too much time a few years ago looking at deals that were too small, not accretive to our mission. It also ties into sort of, you know, thinking about where I was 10 years ago and where a company was 10 years ago versus today. And I look back 10 years ago and my plan at that point in time was just to work extremely hard and grind it out and grow our company steadily and consistently, you know, not really looking to the future as to what the future would hold. And my personal philosophy at that point in time was as long as we continue to do good deals and expand our asset base, everything will fall into place. And I feel like now it sort of has fallen into place. But now that we have 25 people working here and we have a private equity partner and we have north of a billion dollars of assets, we actually have to have very clearly laid out strategic plan 
for our company and for our partners and for everyone that we're dealing with to understand what we're trying to get to and what we're trying to achieve. And so now when we look at transactions, we ask ourselves the question, is this consistent with the strategy and the plan that we've laid out? And if it's not, that's how we're able to say no. Well said, Daniel. I really appreciate you being on. I, I just think your story is terrific. You overcame a lot of adversity in your personal life. For a young guy, you've built a lot. Your future is very, very bright. Just took down this exciting deal. I'm sure there'll be many more to read about in papers over the next year or two. And I really just want to thank you again for being on with our listeners. I'm sure a lot of people can learn a lot from your story. And um, I guess we'll wrap it here. But again, thanks again, Daniel. You've been an amazing guest. I greatly appreciate it. And, you know, a sidebar to being a guest on this podcast is I'm finally moving up close to you. We're relocating to Bergen County in about a month. I'm in my last 10 days here as a full-time resident in Baltimore with my family. So my wife and four kids and I are all moving up to Bergen County. So now all of my friends in New York, you know, who mostly are aware some of them may hear it on here first. I look forward to seeing everybody up there. Amazing. And we'll roll out the red car review for sure. Um, Daniel, thanks again for being on and can't wait to hear more updates over time. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining the Dealmaker's Edge. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a five-star rating so more people can follow the conversation. <laughs>